you're here. Happy March. Hope you guys have had a great, uh, great weekend. Uh, we are in a series right now called What is the Church? And so that is going to be our next um, thing here for our service to preach through this theme. Uh, we've been answering the question from uh, six different biblical angles. That It's, it's not an exhaustive uh, approach to, uh, to the topic. Uh, if you'd like more, um, it's pretty exhaustive, actually. I, should, I shouldn't say not exhaustive. It's pretty exhaustive. Uh, but if you do want more, though, on kind of a topical level, uh, we do have some resources for you kind of uh, queued up. And so we'd love to pass that on if you'd like. Just let us know uh, some books and different resources and classes here, too, that we, that we offer as a church. Um, today, uh, we are going to look at the theme of the Army of Christ. Before that, here is the uh, kind of for your bearing, uh, to get your bearings here. We are um, in week four. So our six biblical answers to the question, what is the church, uh, and related questions like, who are we as Christians? What are we doing here when we gather? Uh, why does church look the way it does? Uh, what does the Bible have to say about gatherings of believers, sort of metaphorically, uh, but also in a very real sense? What should we be thinking about when we pray and preach and gather and, and evangelize? What kind of reality are we, are we really tapping into that might be invisible? And we'll talk about some of that today. Uh, there are things, like the Bible says, for example, that Christians don't live by sight alone. There is another realm, the spiritual realm, that's just as real, even though we can't see it, we believe in it. And so for Christians to think uh, similarly about the church is very, very important. And for those of you who are not Christians yet, too, to understand how Christians think about these things or what the Bible actually says about uh, the church. It's actually, it's bigger than just coming to a building once a week, even though that's very important for us. It's a rhythm for us. That was the first week, the gathering of Christ. We talked about that. There's so much more to say about it uh, as well. So here's the six things, uh, the fourth uh, of which is today, the army of Christ. And so... Uh, thematically, let's dive right in. Lots to talk about. Uh, the, the format of these sermons has basically been uh, the what, so kind of defining this a bit, uh, saying where in the Bible does this come up, and talking kind of on a, a surfacey, not unimportant, but sort of surfacey, accessible level about the what behind the theme. Then uh, the second step has been how does this take shape in our church? What does it look like uh, for us to value this, to believe this, to practice it maybe? And so we'll talk a bit about that. And then the third and final step is, um, where is the gospel in it? How is this doctrine good news? And so uh, that is, uh, again, a huge value here. If you've been here, you've heard me say this for a few weeks now already in Spence. Uh, and that is, we believe, as the Bible teaches and we think shows, that the undercurrent to every like, part of theology is the gospel. So, and, and so therefore, we, we not just uh, should ask, but kind of have to ask, uh, where is good news in these doctrines? So how is it good news that, that the church is the army of Christ? Not just what does it mean, but how does it lead us to the cross? How does it reflect the fact that Jesus died for us as sinners and rose again, overwhelming death three days later for us as well? And in fact, uh, this is no exception. The army of Christ uh, theme does this beautifully as well. So we'll get there a little bit later on. All right, so to start off, uh, more of the what. Uh, what is the army of Christ I put here, kind of in summary, uh, it is a, a part of a greater story of the ultimate battle between good and evil. So I know for a lot of you that probably goes without, almost without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't want to assume uh, things here. It's a good reminder anyway. But the Bible is an epic, theological, historical story of the ultimate battle between good and evil. That's what the Bible is. That's what the Christian, that's our reality as, as Christians. That's how we view reality, the world, the unseen, that uh, it is an epic theological struggle or story 
uh, between good or battle between good and evil. So, so in the Bible, then we see things like um, God separating light from darkness in the very beginning and not calling the darkness good. He calls the light good, but not the darkness. We also see things like the rise of dark angels who tempt humanity away from grace right away in the beginning. We see themes of exile or separation from God, us being separated from God because of our sin. We see countless battles in the Old Testament, lots of blood. Uh, We see angels have rank, and rank screams warfare. Uh, All of this culminating in in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is said to be himself a warrior king, in the spirit of David before him, if you know a little, bit of, a little bit about him, who not only exercises demons, speaking of Jesus now, and heals diseases, but he culminates that theme by finally cutting the head off the ultimate Goliath, which is our sin. So we ask the question, where are we in all of this? We find out pretty early on when we read the Bible that there, there are only two sides to the struggle. There's no Switzerland uh, when it comes to, to the war. There's no, there's no country of neutrality. There's no third camp. Either we are for God or against him. We are on the side of Jesus or the side of the serpent or the devil. We are um, born into that latter side, and it's only through God's grace that we are brought over to the side of, of righteousness and truth and, and salvation. So, so when we then, our, our story is basically that. Like it, it talks in the beginning about how we held the hand of the devil and walked off into the darkness and and started to kind of war against God. We, we are framed as enemies of God. So again, not just neutral people in between these two warring factions, but we are actually on the side of the devil by rebelling against God or not believing in him or grieving him when we sin against him or other people. Uh, our disbelief, though, at the core and our arrogance uh, is the ultimate fruit, fruit of that. But, but the gospel is that it, God in his grace makes a way through his son to slay the evil inside of us without slaying us. And that, that is a, a very beaut- complicated but beautiful uh, component to how exactly God is able to, to maintain his love for us without crushing us. So being a, ju- a just judge against all evil, but without crushing us who are evil and who deserve judgment. And the way he did that was by becoming human himself and dying in our place. So that as a human, he can expunge sin from us. He can take it away without crushing us in the process. And so Christ does that. He rises three days later. And then here, going back to today's theme, after his resurrection, it says that he raises up an army of saints, that the church is called soldiers. He, He raises up an army of saints to fight behind him because the idea in the Bible is that Christ ends the war when he dies for our sins and rises again. But battles, many battles still rage on. And we see, we see that in history too with like larger world wars, how there's a decisive, the war is basically over day, but many little, you know, eddies of the river or like spin off or, or little battles kind of ensue still for days or, or weeks or months until those kind of finally peter out. And that's kind of where we are now in reality. The war is over. Jesus has won and yet we are raised up as an army to kind of take the fight to the enemy to finally kind of and ultimately quench out darkness and then evil uh, behind him. All right, so this is where the church comes in then. I kind of mentioned this, but we see in the New Testament, Christians call each other soldiers. All right, so like in Philemon 2, one Christian to another, to another Christian or to a church, our fellow soldier. And so it's not wrong for us to speak in those terms uh, to each other as well. 
at Hiawatha. Today, we are actually spiritual soldiers. That's part of our identity. Or like in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. Again, speaking to the church in Ephesus, but to all of us, this is part of the Bible and part of our reality. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But it's more than soldiers, it's also an entire army, as we've been saying. So I want to read a a longer passage from Ezekiel 37, uh, 1 to 10, which is a prophecy in the Old Testament uh, about a future time when Christ ultimately would breathe upon dead people, bring them to life, so speaking of us being the dead people, bring them to life and make them into an army. All right, so verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, and here's the key, an exceedingly great army. All right, so lots to say about this, uh, some of which will come up a little bit later on. But for right now, just take this in as a picture of your story. So if you're a Christian, this is, this is a demonstration or a picture, a prophecy of your origin story. This is where you and I came from. This is our birth narrative, essentially. And it's a picture of the gospel, right? Meaning it's about God raiding tombs or walking across graveyards or open valleys full of of slain people and raising them, sinners, from the dead, which he would later do through Christ, right? And so in this story, Isaiah, or Ezekiel, is a picture of Jesus. So so here where God is saying to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones, this is just a vision and a symbol. Later he would say to Jesus, actually do this. Actually breathe on people. And he does after his resurrection Remember in John 20 when he does that, when he breathes on his disciples? It's kind of a weird moment, uh, but he breathes on them. It's to fulfill this passage. God is raising dead people, us, who aren't doing anything. We're lying there helpless. This is our story. All right, so it's a gospel picture in that God wants to do this. His arm's not twisted. He wants to do this. He wants to save us. And this is where we came from. So it's a gospel picture, but it's also a church picture because It means we've been saved and raised up, not unto ourselves, but into an army. We've been assembled into an army, which means a number of things, but one of which is there is a war. That's one. Two, we are to fight in it. 
And three, this is kind of uh, easily missed and a little bit outside of this passage, but, or no, I shouldn't say that. It's right in it. It's kind of reassuring, isn't it, that we fight behind a God who, oh, you know, with a word just made dry bones come to life. Like, if you were to fight behind somebody, like, I think I'd take the guy that spoke to the bones and they, like, got skin on them and organs put back into them and then they were made into an army. I, I'd fight behind that guy, you know. I don't know about you, but I, I'd take up a sword and say, let's go. But, but then you probably wouldn't feel like you'd have much to add to the battle, would you? You'd sort of be like, um, all right, I guess I'll sort of contribute, but you'd sort of, like, acquiesce, wouldn't you, a little bit to the guy who just um, made an army out of a graveyard. But, all right, anyway, so have that in mind as we go. I, I think there's a lot of gospel in that, and we'll come back to this. This is, a, this is an army picture. This is a precursor to the church in the Old Testament, precursor to where the church would come from and, and, and what it is. And the fact here that God says this powerfully, I mean, we should be thinking when we read this, is there anything too hard for him? Is there anything too hard for our God? Of course there's, of course there's not, right, if he can do this. And, and so we should be thinking related things like, man, if he can do this, can't he also say to my sins, die with the same result? And the answer is, yes, he can. And he did through his son. All right, so how does this look at Hiawatha? Um, there, so we get asked occasionally by, by people, like, do you, guys, do you guys think about spiritual warfare much? Do you, do you talk in those terms? Is that something that you, you know, bring into prayer meetings or... Have you ever preached on this before? Um, and so this is kind of a good chance for us in this series to spin off and talk a little bit about this practically. Um, and there's more important things to get to, but, but I just want to, I, I do want to do this. This is actually helpful on a practical level for you, those, those of you that have that question, but for all of us as believers and for those of you that wonder, like, how do we think as leaders here and how should we broadly, uh, broadly speaking as Christians? So in one sense, the answer it really is pretty much in everything we do. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, we don't talk always about, you know, spiritual warfare being like in everything we do because you don't have to. That's not like biblically mandated. It's just, but it might be assumed or it might be implied a lot of times. But basically in everything we do, you know, it, it could be considered spiritual warfare, whether it's directly that or, or indirect. And so um, though this list could be pages long, here's a few big picture things. Like first and foremost probably is just simply prayer. Uh, we pray against dark angels. We pray against temptation. We pray against sin. We pray against uh, the darkness, kind of more broadly speaking, and, and against influences that might, lead, that might lead us away from Christ, as the Bible instructs us to, and, and Christ himself does. Uh, but, but the idea with prayer is that if we believed we are in a war, it would affect our prayers, Right? This is why we started the way that we did. That, that, that's not just a metaphor. It's a reality. If we really believe we're in a war and there were actually threats, there were actually casualties, there were actually victories, uh, there were actually uh, commands uh, from uh, you know, commanding officers, uh, so to speak, and, and things like that, it would affect the way we pray. We, we would pray more wartime themes like for conversions and for protection and for the slain of sin and for our brothers and sisters who might be tripping, uh, you know, it's, and the list goes on. But we would be doing that probably more than things that don't matter as much. And, and so this, this needs to, 
we would say, rightly shape uh, an urgency in our, our prayer lives. And, and so we'd say that corporately, but also for all of us, if we're Christians, in, individually. Uh, we've prayed over homes, uh, speaking as one of the leaders here, like we've gone to homes of people who have felt demonic presences in their homes or in their kids through night terrors, um, demonic night terror dreams type things, prayed over homes uh, in, as well, uh, multiple times. And uh, even in my, in my home, Aletha and I, it's interesting, um, looking just by experience now, I didn't, I mean, this is just an experiential thing mostly, but in terms of what we've seen here, and, and what I know from outside Hiawatha, too, like, it just seems like there's, strangely, an inroads for demonic, like, presence in homes through kids. Uh, and I know some of you have, that's not been your experience, and that's to- great, actually. It's a good thing. Uh, but for a lot of people, for some reason, just having fear and having kids with darker demonic dreams and things like that, it's just become this kind of inroads for fear uh, and temptation and things. Uh, it's just... For some reason, it's like this open window to the home of the family. Um, and so we've prayed against those things. Um, I've personally, a lot of you have as well, have woken up in a cold sweat of fear, just sensing demons in my bedroom uh, multiple times before, like three times a year or something, this will happen. And it's trepidating. It is terrible. But I say a prayer, I call out unto the name of Jesus, and I sleep like a baby after that. So, because Jesus always answers, you know, or things like that. So I'm just trying to like, it's a spectrum. I'm trying to slide the, spe- the slider to one side, which is kind of this more obvious maybe thing or maybe weird to some of you, but it's real. Demons are real. They're not metaphors for personified evil. They're actually real. Uh, the devil hates you if you're a Christian. He hates you, and he wants to harm you. And so, like, that, this will shape how we, how we pray and prayer walk and, and things like that. Through this building, we've sensed demonic activity before. Crazy stories that I'd love to share. Actually, some of you know what I'm talking about, but if you want to know more, I can, I can talk to you later, okay? Uh, community. Um, it's, so community is spiritual warfare because it's harder to be attacked when you're amongst the herd, right? Uh, think of the, um, the wolf and the lamb mentality, like if, uh, that um, wolf and sheep. Like if you're one of a hundred and you're not like the six stray, um, that's what animals do sometimes. They kind of part the sick and they go, at, they go for the easy kill. Uh, community actually does, is a type of warfare, uh, gospel preaching. Anytime we preach the gospel of grace, hail Christ as king of the universe and our lives. Worship him and hail him as king. We declare war against the darkness. And we do that every time we sing, every time we take communion, every time we preach the gospel in formal ways like I am and informal ways like any of us can do to our friends and kids and peers and community groups. Um, or anything in between. Church planting. Matthew 16, 18 says, Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are advancing against the gates of hell. Do you believe that? Jesus believes it. He indicates that it's, it's true. It's our reality. We are waging war actually against the devil himself. We are not just passive participant or passive watchers of these things we're actually somehow engaged in that when we're doing these kinds of things when we pray and and befriend each other and love each other and preach the gospel hail christ as king start new churches to do all these things in more pockets of our city and and beyond it's also in more in more precise things like working for healthy marriages first corinthians 7 says that good sex lives in the marriage context battles the devil did you know that those of you who are married, or those of you who are not too. Uh, 
but it's, this is explicitly biblical. This is like uh, sex actually in the marriage context between a man and a woman is spiritual warfare. It battles the devil by battling temptation. All right, training leaders as well. Um, when we train, if all this is true, when we train leaders in the church, we are training soldiers or we're training captains or colonels or generals. And so it, it matters, and it's a way we can fight and, uh, and push back the darkness. We also uh, do warfare by talking about how our main problem as Christians actually isn't demons. And this is an important thing. The Bible obviously acknowledges this reality, and it's, I'm not taking away from it necessarily, just saying that your and my main problem is not demons. It's ourselves. It's our hard hearts. This is what the Bible teaches your biggest problem is you. Your biggest problem is that you don't have a soft heart or a soft mind or a propensity to pursue the truth, and I don't either. Uh, we're like the bones, for crying out loud. Bones don't do good. They don't, have a, they don't have a heart. That's the biggest problem. The, the devil, you guys read the screw tape Letters uh, by, by C.S. Lewis? I recommend it. Um, it's been years since I read it, so I'm not actually sure if he says this exactly, but I'm it's in there somewhere. The devil would love for you to think that he is your biggest problem. The devil would love it if you think he, the devil, is the biggest problem in the world. Because if you did that, you would take the focus off of this, your heart. And all of a sudden, the cross would become just this way that Jesus is doing a, a war over here, you know, fighting dark angels for you, which is good news, don't get me wrong, but without the atonement factor, without the love factor, without being harmed for us factor. See, we do warfare by, by actually lowering the, the, the demonic realm sometimes and upplaying the personal sin uh, factor when it comes to what Jesus uh, came, came to do. So, relatedly, we'll, we'll take sin seriously here and, and, want, and, and seek to kill it by the power of the Spirit and constantly apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to our souls that are wicked, but by God's grace, because he lives in us, being transformed and being changed. So relatedly to this last, this last one, and I think to answer this question more expansively, we have to answer one other, one other question today, um, which is this third category of where is the gospel in the army of Christ? Where is really the gospel? And we kind of talked about it to begin a little bit, but I want to add a question here that will really help us drill into this, which is, what are our weapons? If we're an army, what do we fight with? What are our, our weapons? And there's two answers to this. Uh, the first answer, kind of angle on it, is in one sense, we don't have any weapons. And there's good news in that idea, that we are completely and totally weaponless and empty-handed. Uh, Israel uh, images this really well in the Old Testament, if you've maybe read some of these things before. There's a part where God says to Israel, he commands them, you will not have horses like the other nations. And he does that so that they will be weaker, so that when they still win, it will be obvious that it's God making them win and causing them to win, not their own personal strength. So that it's clear they're saved by grace and not by works. You will not have horses. It was a command. 
Or we see it like in the story of David and Goliath and related types of battles where even Goliath the giant, you know, mocks David by saying, do you really come at me as a child with sticks and stones? Like he's fighting with like nothing, like a stick. Do you remember that when he's fitted for like, he's fitted with armor, it's too big, and he says, I can't fight in this. So he's a child, a boy, barely a teenager if that even, and he slays this nine foot tall Navy SEAL. It's God. It's not David. It's God who did the slaying. Or think of the story of when Israel marched around Jericho. Remember what God said to them about when they were to march around the city, which was a tall, walled, well-defended city of evil in Canaan that God was giving them this access to and occupation of this land. It was a picture of salvation, but they had to come through the city first. Remember what God said? You shall march around the city, but not touch it with your finger. And they marched around it for seven days. They kept their distance, walking around it silently. On the last day, they blew trumpets. Great. And they shouted, awesome. You know, like, what's that going to do? But it's in that moment, the walls came completely crashing and crumbling down, and not one stone was left on top of another. It was that systemic of a defeat. But do you see the pattern in all of this? God caused, commanded, and made Israel weak, and then still made them win. So it will be clear that it's God's victory that makes us the victors. It's our sharing in the victory that makes us the victors, not our efforts, not our fighting, not our strength, not our military prowess, none of that. Jesus also in Revelation 3 says to one of the churches, you are blind, poor, pitiable, and naked. And I would add, weaponless. And, and we say empty-handed. You know, and Jesus here is not insulting Christians. He loves them. He loves us. We're his bride. He's just saying in love, he's speaking truth because this is a very arrogant church. They had lost sight of who they really were, and they were beginning to trust in their own strength, their own religious works, and not in the grace of God. They were drifting doctrinally and in a gospel way. And so Jesus comes and reveals himself and through this vision of John, that John gets in, at, at the end of the Bible. And, and this is, but this is a word for us as well, for all the churches to hear that we are weaponless. This is us. Spiritually speaking without Christ, we are blind, poor, pitiable, and naked. We've forgotten this, or we can forget it. Or at least remember, it's our reality. Empty-handed, Hiawatha Church, the word of Revelation 3.17 for us is, you and I are weaponless. And that's good news because God uses weaponless armies all over the place and we share in his victory. So when we think, when we think about ourselves as fighting, we do so weaponless in light of Christ's fight. Um, this is important. 1 Corinthians 15 says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, this is the key word, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives or grants a victory. He gives us a trophy that we didn't lift a finger to accomplish ourselves. So we have the victory. We have the ribbon. We, we have the recognition for winning, and yet we didn't do anything. This is how Christian, this is our reality. This is how we fight. We fight in and through his fight. We fight in the fact that he's fought for us. When my son Emmett was four or five, um, 
he was playing Mario Kart, the Nintendo game Mario Kart, with his uh, two older cousins. And he was very young. Uh, if you played Mario Kart before, it's kind of hard just to pick up. It's, it's a kind of a complicated game. But it's this three-race game, and he got behind right away, driving backwards off the road. I mean, he was just getting frustrated. And um, my two nephews are there, his cousins, and they're just they're dominating. And so in frustration, Emmett just passes me the controller and says, Dad, you play. And so I pick the controller up, and I'm like, I'm going to dominate. I'm going to come back and just... <laughs> Like, my little nephews are here, and I'm like, I'm just going to win. I don't care. <laughs> like, and, I, and I come all the way back, and I just dominated them. Like, it was just, they were like, yeah, it was awesome. But one of my, but, um, so anyway, but in that moment, right when I crossed the finish line, and this is the key, right when I crossed the finish line, and the first place goes up on the screen, Emmett, my son, starts jumping up and down saying, I won! I won! <laughs> And he didn't do a thing. In fact, he made it harder for me to win. And that is exactly, exactly your and my story with God. We have done nothing to accomplish the victory. We've actually made it harder. And yet Christ has not only fought for us, he shares the victory with us. And in, in one sense, is this, really kind of, is this really too hard to understand? When we think about, think about sports, why do you care so much about a sports team winning? If you're a Minnesota sports fan, for, uh, or, you know, or if you're, a, if you're from Wisconsin and you're a Packer fan, why do you care? You care because they, in a way, represent you, right? That's the only reason why you care. Otherwise, why would you care? We, we care about a Minnesota team winning because we're Minnesotans. We care because they represent us in some way. And when they win, we kind of win, even though we didn't do a thing to help the team win. Someone else's victory gives us the victory. Someone else's victory gives us joy. In that way, we not only win the war against the devil and our sin and against the darkness, we win the war against despair. We win the war against hopelessness and disbelief and pride. Because who can be proud when someone else does all the fighting? You know, we're like the backup quarterback that never played a down for the Super Bowl winning team who still gets the Super Bowl ring. That's who we are. It's good news, though. It's good news because we actually still have the victory in every sense of the word. Every sense. But Christ has done it all. There is good news in that we don't have any weapons. All right? That's the first side. In one sense, we don't have any weapons. But in another sense, oh, we actually do have one weapon, though. And it happens to be the greatest weapon in the universe. So it's like, you know, a little bit of both sides of the mouth thing happening here, right? But in another sense, though, this is very important. The Bible speaks in both ways and does not see a contradiction. Revelation 12, 7 to 11, I'm going to read this. This is from also... The, uh, the last book of the Bible. It's an apocalyptic vision, kind of like Ezekiel 37 was that we started with. But it's wartime imagery. Verse 7 says, Now a war arose in heaven. The time, the time here is when Jesus died on a cross for our sins and rose again. That's when this is happening. Through his death and resurrection, the devil's being thrown down. Okay? So have that in mind. 
Now, a war arose in heaven, Michael, who's an angel, and his angels, good angels, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon, who is the devil, and his angels, dark angels, fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. All right, so much rich theology going on here, but, but on topic with the idea of the army of Christ, did you see the battle imagery here? Did you see when it talked about the brothers who are the, who's the church, the, the saints who are fighting? Did you see how we fight? I want to focus on this last verse where it says, they, the church, have conquered him, the devil, by what? What are we fighting with? The blood of Jesus. The blood of the slain lamb, the sacrificial lamb who is slain for us. That's how we fight. And by the word of their testimony. What's that? The gospel. What else could it be? The word of our story, the word of our testimony. Christ being that ultimate word. That's our weaponry. And it's the strongest weapon we can possibly wield against the devil and his angels, against our sin and against death, and more broadly speaking, just the darkness. And so that's our weapon. We fight with a, a sword laced with the blood of Christ. We, we fight with his shed, the idea, the reality of his shed blood for us. We fight with the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But there's still a question of how we do that. That's pretty abstract, right? And so what, what helps in this passage is you see the devil called two things. The devil is an accuser, and he is a liar, the, the great deceiver. That's like, you know, not the only way to describe him biblically, but that's kind of his MO. He is accusing you, if you're a Christian, he's accusing you before God day and night. It's not super reassuring, is it? But that's what's happening. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've like, every bad motive you've ever had, every sexual sin, every moment of gossip and lying, everything is being laid before God. And yet the way that God deals with that is to throw down the accusations. But, but the blood of Christ is what does it. And this is key. Christ, of course, is doing this first, but we can continue. The war's done. We continue the battle, though, by using gospel thoughts to battle the, the accusations we might actually hear in our heart. We might hear you're a terrible Christian for doing that. How dare you think that you're a son or a daughter of the king? Christians never think. They're never that, that perverted or that impure in their mind. You're not saved. Like if we get these accusations that we hear whispers of in our brains or hearts, we fight back. And, and the way we do that first is deflecting accusation to disarm the enemy. See, when you, when you deflect his accusations, he has nothing to fight. 
has nothing to accuse anymore because your sins are gone and atoned for. So, see, the gospel says things like, I am loved, I am cleansed, I am atoned for, I am accepted, I am a son and daughter, Jesus has fought for me. Those are, those are ways to, to wield the sword of the Spirit laced with the blood of Christ against these types of lies. Do you do that? You must do this. Your joy is at stake. Your perseverance might even be at stake. Your maturity is certainly at stake in Christ. But it goes beyond that. It's also with calling out lies. So we also are calling out lies to expose the enemy. So we deflect accusations to disarm the enemy, and we call out lies to expose the enemy. The lies might be bad theology. It might be watered-down, progressive forms of of Christianity that are more about us being good than about Jesus bleeding for us. Uh, It might downplay our sin. Uh, It might upplay the power of human potential. It might make Christ more into a human teacher than a a lamb who bled for us in love. And, And they're slippery slopes. And the Bible warns against these things. And there are casualties all the time of people taking those slippery slopes and eventually neglecting and renouncing Christ and their faith. And, and we're in a war, and we've seen that. Speaking of war, um, we've seen casualties here. And we'll probably see more. And I mean casualties, like people actually renouncing Christ, who seem to have been strong Christians before that, actually leading here and doing other things, uh, influencing, who are casualties. Is that going to be you? Are you the next casualty Or are you holding on for dear life to Christ and him crucified? And if you are, it will not be. But the reality is we're being accused and we're being lied to. How do you know what a lie is? How do you know what the truth is? How can you trust your own heart or mind? See, we need community. We need an open Bible before us. We need something objective to us. We need the truth of the gospel to fight back. If we don't, we're toast. So to call out lies would be to say things back to lies like, no, Jesus really is the Son of God, not just a man. We take a stand on that. We say, no, he really did die for our sins, not just exemplified humility on the cross for us to copy. We take a stand on that. We swing the sword at those lies. There really is nothing else required except grace. We say no to the lies that we hear in our mind or the world. When we hear opposite of that, nothing else is required. There's no commandment-keeping or law-keeping that, that any dry bones could do to make themselves alive. Morality is not our Savior. Jesus' blood is. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb and the word of our gospel. It doesn't say the law is your weapon, your morality, what you do, right? You see the good news in this? Sinners can do this. This is not a battle just for good people. Sinners like me, sinners like you, can do this because if we believe the gospel, we're given a sword. We're, get, we're equipped with, uh, with these kinds of things. The second part of this verse um, says they love not their lives even unto death. Um, the idea here is we wage warfare against the darkness, I think, by thinking of ourselves less, by not valuing our lives in relation to the gospel itself. But I said this a couple of weeks ago too, and I'll bring it up again here. 
I think this also means spiritually that we've already died. And there's nothing, if, if we believe we've already died, there's nothing that can be done to us. We can't be harmed, right? Uh, I, a few weeks ago, I, I said that theme like comes out in movies sometimes where someone's being chased and threatened or tortured or something, and then they die, and then the antagonist leaves right away. They, they have not, there's nothing else they can do because the death happened. That's true for you, Christian. You've already died in Christ. You love not your life unto death. You're dead. There's nothing that, that can be done to you. It reminded me of uh, Aragorn's Army of the Dead in Lord of the Rings. Like, we are like, if you know this story, we are like the Army of the Dead. We are murderers, we are traitors, we are thieves, we are cowards, as they're mentioned in this story. But who have been summoned to fight behind our king. And we're invincible because we've already died. We're already dead. There's nothing that can be done. See, our, our fight is not... We are alive, and we need to fight evil by doing enough good to be saved in the end. But our, our, our fight is we are dead. We've died in our sins. And, and more so, Christ has died for us and with us when he died for us. And so the enemy has no more power over us. We're forgiven. This is an imperfect picture, of course, but Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, actually is a perfect picture. Bones made alive who fight with their captain's perfect sin-destroying blood. All right? A final word here from Revelation 12, 15 to 16. A couple comments. Um, a few verses later, it says, The serpent, the devil, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the church to sweep her away with the flood. This is a picture of today, by the way. This is not a picture of the future. This is a picture of the, the, the last 2,000 years of Christian church reality. This is the battle. The devil's after the church. He tried to sweep her away at the flood, but the earth came to the help of the church. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. It's a kind of a cool apocalyptic picture. Very cool image, actually, of the earth coming to the rescue uh, of, of the church. But we all know the church is inanimate, right? Like it's... The earth can't actually do that. It must be the Lord of the earth that, that's doing the, the saving. And it's very interesting. When you think about it in those terms, and then think about some of the things Jesus said, um, this made me think a lot about Matthew 12 this week and how Jesus talks about his own death and burial in earth-swallowing terms. Like, do you remember when Jesus says, like Jonah was swallowed by the fish, I will be swallowed by the heart of the earth, basically? Um, Jonah being swallowed by a fish is representative of what Jesus would later come to do, to be absorbed by death, to be taken over and swallowed. And I think that's what this is about. Jesus is not just doing the deflecting of the problem. He's being hit or swallowed by the problem for us. So we might get away. Do you, get, do you understand the difference? Both are important. When you picture Jesus fighting for you, he's not just out in front of you with sword and shield doing the damage to the enemy. He's also being swallowed by the earth, taking damage for you, like the great kings of old in the Old Testament did. And of course, we can see this play out today in, in many and in various ways. But do you see how important that is? When warfare is happening, he's not just cutting the heads off of demons. He is. He's being cut and when we think about warfare, for us, when we think about warfare, 
we have to think about both. That's why it's no coincidence in this same vision of Jesus throwing the devil out of heaven through his death and resurrection and equipping the church to fight and the church fighting in the spirit and power of, of, of God himself who's filling them with, with the power and with the blood of Jesus Christ to fight with that. In the same context, we have a picture of Jesus being buried. It's no coincidence. Yes, we have dealt a moral blow to the devil, the church has. We're charging the gates of hell. And yet, so we don't forget, we had this symbolic, apocalyptic picture of Jesus being buried. So, and, and that is what the army of Christ is. That's spiritual warfare. The fought, the fought for ones who fight, but who are still being fought for every day and who fight with the gospel. Let me read from Romans 8 to close. I'm just going to read this. No commentary on it. Just a closing reading. Romans 8, 32 to 39, chock full of warfare imagery. And I think it's at the heart of what warfare really is for the Christian. The fought for ones who fight in light of the gospel. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, guys, for the rest of our time today, we are going to celebrate this idea, essentially, through the taking of communion. Uh, and I was getting at this at the end here with Revelation 12 a little bit. Um, again, showing how the idea of the army of Christ is not a separate doctrine from the death of Christ. It's not separate from the resurrection of Christ. It's not separate from the burial of Christ. Everything is interconnected doctrinally, and this is an example of that. And so communion for the church is a time to remember this. Essentially, uh, on the night Jesus was betrayed, hours before his arrest, he had his last supper with his disciples, as the Bible teaches, he broke, it was, a, it was a, a Passover meal that he was fulfilling, but a Passover meal and a Last Supper that he used to sort of exemplify what he was about to do. So he broke bread and said, this is my body given for you, and he fed his friends with it. With it. Then he poured out wine and said, this is my blood of the New Testament, my blood of the New Covenant, poured out for your sins. So getting very specific and clear with what he was about to do. Making a new covenant between sinners and God, making them one, or making an opportunity for a bridge to exist between them, himself being the bridge. But the covenant had nothing to do with us and our works. It was completely based off of what he was willing to give. He was willing to call out into the valley of dry bones, like he was willing to become dry bones, essentially, for us. 
on the cross so we can, we can have that type of new life breathed into us. So that's the gospel. And uh, we, we practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of our church or any church to, to take communion with us, but we ask that you are a follower of Christ, that you believe that, that you're trusting only in what this meal symbolizes and not at all in yourselves, that the victory you believe was given to you, that you share in the victory given, though you lifted not a finger to accomplish it yourselves. You believe that God loved you through it. If you, if you trust that Jesus has saved you from your sins, that makes you a Christian. It's not about performance or mask wearing or holding up our own trophies, bragging about ourselves. It is not about the law. There's no Ten Commandments on this table. It's only if you eat this, if you spiritually nourish yourself on this gospel, that is, that's what makes someone a, a believer. So, um, so how we do communion here is based, it's pretty free time, like uh, open time. If it, uh, the band's going to come up and play through a set of songs, anytime during that, we invite you to come down the center aisle and break off some bread, pour a cup of juice or wine, and just take it uh, yourself or with your uh, spouse or family or friends or community group. Or, it's a very free and open time. Anytime during that set, we invite you to come down. Or after the service, too, if you want to wait. It'll still be here for a bit after the service if you'd like to wait as well. But, um, and we'll have people up front who'd love to pray for you, too, myself included. Uh, if you would like to make that a part of your worship experience, uh, it could be a general request or just say, can you just pray for me? Uh, or a specific thing, we, we would love to, to do that uh, for you as well. Um, so I think that's about it. So let me, uh, let me pray, and we'll uh, get started. God, thank you so much for this, uh, this meal. Um, thank you that it, as Christians, um, we have it now as an opportunity to remember a past salvific event, uh, a great decisive wartime victory over darkness when, Jesus, you were absorbed by darkness for us a great decisive victory against the devil uh, when you took all of his blows on that cross for us, a great decisive victory against our sin when you, as it says, became sin on the cross, even though you knew no sin. You took on all the curses of the Bible, all the curses of history, all the curses of our lives. You took it upon yourself and wore it around your neck like a heavy millstone, and you bore it so we could be saved. Father, but in that we are raised, in that we are called into your presence, we're called to be an army. Father, help us to fight. Even now as we sing, we are waging war against the devil. Now as we sing and say, and eat this meal and say, this, this alone is sufficient, this bread and wine, it's sufficient. that's waging war against the darkness. They would love us to believe otherwise. They would love us to rely on ourselves and our good works at the expense of it. And so God, help us in community to do warfare even now and throughout this week by being gospel-centered people who fight with the sword of the Spirit laced with the blood of the Lamb. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Please stand as we worship.